Thank you, Dave. Thank you, John. Appreciate your serving and leading us in music this evening. I want you to imagine something with me. Just kind of let's play make-believe a little bit. Actually, before we do that, I just want to say one quick word. Thank you so much to all who welcomed my son Jonathan this morning. Uh, because Jonathan lives at Witten Center, uh, and we don't have the ability to transport a wheelchair very often. It's been years since he's been able to be here, and we just thank you so much for the way you welcomed him, the way you encouraged him, and bless my wife uh, so very much in that. So thank you. Uh, so now, let's play a little, a little make-believe. Now, the first thing I'm going to say is actually true. Our, my fellow pastor, my co-pastor, Mark Hatfield, before he ever entered the ministry, he owned a general contracting company. He and his brother were, he was president and his brother vice president of Hatfield Builders. So I want you to imagine for a moment that Mark Hatfield, not Pastor Mark, but Builder Mark, calls you up and says, I want to give you a job. I want you to come to work for me. And just, you know, whatever your experience actually is, just imagine for a moment that your response is, well, Mark, you know, that's very kind, but I don't know anything at all about construction. I have never even picked up a hammer. I've never even set foot inside of Home Depot. And Mark says, no problem. Don't worry about it. We'll take care of everything. And so you show up for work, and, and, and Mark is all excited. He said, come on, let's go. And you get in the car, and you drive out into the countryside, and you, you come to this beautiful, beautiful field. And there are rolling hills and mountains in the distance. It's spectacular. And, and you stop, he stops in the middle of the field, and he gets out of the car, and he opens the trunk. He gets out this little table, and he, he unrolls a set of plans. And there on the plans are this magnificent cathedral. And you're looking at that going, that's a nice picture. And he goes, I know, and you're going to build it. No, wait a minute, Mark. You see, I don't know anything about construction. I, I've never picked up a hammer. I've never even set foot inside Home Depot. No problem. Don't worry about it. And as you thumb through the drawings and he's pointing at stuff, you have no idea what any of it means. He's getting more excited, but you're getting more frustrated. And you say, Mark, who's going to help me build this cathedral? Oh, nobody. You're going to do it yourself. But Mark, I don't know anything about construction. You, you got the, the, the point. No problem. Don't worry about it. But Mark, where are the materials? Oh, that's the best part. He goes back to his trunk. He gets out of his trunks a box of Legos and a Bob the Builder's toolkit. Here you go. Everything you need to build this spectacular cathedral. You're dumbfounded. Mark, I don't have a crew. These tools and this materials, they're a joke. I know nothing about construction, but I know enough to say I can't build that with this. No problem. Don't worry about it. I have every confidence in you. Give me a call when you're done. And he gets in the car and he drives off. He leaves you standing in the middle of the field holding a box of Legos, a Bob the Builder toolkit, looking at a, pair, a set of drawings that may as well be in Portuguese. Now, I want to ask you this question. At that moment, what are you feeling? At that moment, how do you think you would be likely to spend the rest of that day? For that matter, the rest of the week. Are you frustrated? Are you hopeless? Are you angry? Are you thinking this is just some sick joke? 
You're asking me to do something utterly impossible with wholly inadequate materials. And if that's what you're feeling, it's not very likely you're going to take the time to open up that box of Legos or that box of Bob the Builder toolkit and pour your heart and soul into this building project. Now, right at this moment, back in the sermon, some of you are going, Pastor Jamie, have you lost your marbles? Why are you taking the time to tell this silly story? Well, there is a point to be made from this story. You see, if you're given an impossible project and you're giving hopelessly inadequate resources to accomplish that project, you are not likely to pour your heart and soul into accomplishing the project because you don't believe in the project. You have no idea how to do it. You might like the idea of putting a spectacular cathedral on this beautiful hillside, but you don't believe it's possible for you to build it with the resources provided for you. You don't have the experience, you don't have the manpower, you don't have the materials, you don't have the tools, you don't have anything necessary to do that job. You're convinced you're given an impossible task, so why try? Right? Are we all there? So let's think about how that applies to the Christian life for a moment. You ever feel like the task of living a mature, godly, Christ-like life is beyond your grasp? When God says in 1 Peter 1.16, you shall be holy for I am holy. Do you ever read that and go, but wait a minute. In my circumstance, that's just not possible. I don't have all the resources I need to be holy. You don't know what I have done. I've already flubbed it up. It's beyond reach. You ever feel like when God says, you shall be holy for I'm holy, he's giving you an impossible assignment. You feel like it's, it, it's really hopeless, so, so why even try? Peter wants to assure us it is not hopeless. In fact, he tells us in 2 Peter 1, and go ahead and turn there if you would, that you already have everything you need. 2 Peter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 11. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. All that was one sentence. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance in the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I want you to see this evening, first of all, that you, 
Christian, if you are in Christ, you are a child of God, you have been fully equipped to live a fruitful Christian life. All that pertains to life and godliness, you already have. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Think about this, this statement. I believe it's very, very true and very important. And that is this. We all live out of a sense of identity. We all live out of a sense of who, who I am, what resources I have, what abilities I have. We're looking at challenges and we're asking the question, do I have what it takes? We, we, we start that at a very young age. You've seen a toddler holding onto the coffee table and he's looking at the sofa about six steps away and he's asking himself the question, do I have what it takes to make it from here to there without falling on my nose? And from that point until the day we enter glory as we face challenges, we're asking, do I have what it takes to meet this challenge? We live out of the sense of identity and that, that, that sense of identity shapes what you believe what you can do. And that impacts what you believe you ought to do. When it says, you shall be holy for I am holy, and you believe that's impossible, how can you expect me to be holy? That's an impossible task. Not only do you believe you can't do it, on some level you don't even think you ought to have to do it. So the sense of identity wields powerful influence not only on what we do but on why we do it, on our motivation to do the things that God is calling us to do. Now, for instance, there are families that put a very high premium on education. We get education. That's what our family's about. So we study hard. We try to make good grades. We try to do our best. If you grew up in that kind of family, that sense of identity determines how you approach school how you approach assignments, how you approach your homework, not only the effort you put forward, but even the motivation you bring to the task. Now, in the silly illustration I told a few moments ago, all right, Pastor Mark never did that with anybody, I promise. But your identity in that illustration is a person who knows absolutely nothing about construction. No experience, no knowledge, no tools, no resources, and therefore you conclude this is an impossible assignment. Maybe even you would say it's a hopeless case. Maybe you would even say, I am a hopeless case. You see what happens? The assignment's too big. It's hopeless. I'm hopeless. Do you see how identity so powerfully impacts us and yet so very Subtly, And that, that functional helplessness that grows out of our sense of who we are, sense of our identity, can be paralyzing. Now, in the illustration, that functional helplessness is actually quite accurate, right? You don't know what you're doing. But the problem is, too many Christians live with a sense of functional helplessness. When God says, you can be holy as I am holy, you can by the grace of God. Now, now, what does Peter mean here when he says life and godliness? He's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. What is life and godliness? Well, the reality is God is calling us to be like Jesus Christ. In Romans 8, verse 29, it says, we were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, if you are honest, you're keenly aware just how much you are not like Jesus Christ. And yet, God is calling us 
to the, 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 the spiritual vitality and the godly character that Jesus manifested when he was here on this earth. That's what God's calling you, and that's what God's calling me to live out. The spiritual vitality and integrity and, and, uh, and, and the godly character that the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated when he was here living as a man. And you might ask the question, how, how in the world am I supposed to do that? How is that even possible? We, we, we feel helpless to become more like Christ. We feel helpless to overcome this particular struggle, this particular besetting sin, this particular obstacle, this particular challenge of obedience. You might be able to add a little virtue here, a few good works there, but sometimes there's this big looming thing and you're just, I don't know how to do it. You feel like you have a box of Legos and a Bob the Builder toolkit. Maybe I can come up with an acceptable doghouse. But a magnificent cathedral, that's just not possible. I don't have what it takes. Well, God says you do. God says all things that pertain to life and, and, and godliness, his divine power has given to you and to me. Now, the tense of this verb here, and I'll mention this again in a few moments, but it's a perfect tense. That means it's something that's already happened and the results continue. You have already been given all things that pertain to life and godliness, and you still have those resources. God has given them to you, and you still have them. That's what that verb means. Now, you and I live out of a sense of identity. Peter's telling us, this is who you are. This is what you have. It is up to you, and it is up to me to believe what God's Word tells us. Now, there are three questions that every Christian needs to be able to answer. Every person, really, but every Christian. We need to answer, what is my identity, what is my provision, and what is my purpose? My identity, my provision, and my purpose. Who am I? What do I have? And why am I doing it? Well, what is your identity? Well, you are in Christ. If you're a Christian, we are in Christ. We are a redeemed, adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God. We have a new self created after the likeness of Jesus Christ in true righteousness and holiness, Scripture says. Our names are written down in the Lamb's book of life. Our citizenship is in heaven. We have an inheritance in heaven that can never perish, spoil, or fade. We have been sealed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. This is the outworking of the gospel. These great and precious promises Peter refers to right here. The promise of the gospel is not just about heaven. It's about who we are now and what God makes us to be, enables us to be right here and right now, who we are in Jesus Christ. Now, we gain our sense of identity from a lot of different influences without even thinking about it. But I want you to think about it for a minute. As you develop certain abilities and, and, and achieve certain accomplishments, you gain a sense of confidence. I can do that. That's an identity statement. I have what it takes to do that. I can run a mile, or I can run a half marathon, or I can make it from the, the, the coffee table to the sofa or whatever. I can prepare that meal. I can take that class. I can fill in the blank. As you develop abilities and achievements, you develop a sense of confidence. That's an identity issue. Secondly, our failures. When we fail, oftentimes that has a powerful impact on our sense of who we are. 
It's not just I have failed, it's I am a failure. And if you allow the enemy to inflict you with that title, that label, that lie, then you'll be hamstrung in the Christian life. Many times our identity is shaped by the reaction that we believe or we perceive that we're getting from other people. Now think about this for a moment. We believe that we accurately understand other people's assessment of us, all right? This person likes me, that person doesn't like me. Now, it may be the person you think doesn't like you, they're just preoccupied with something else and they're not even thinking about you. But we perceive that we accurately understand their assessment of us and we, perce- we believe that that assessment's accurate. Therefore, if a person rejects you, you can come to the conclusion, I must be a reject. Or even if you perceive that they've rejected you. And it can cause your whole sense of person to implode. We, the, these out, exterior influences have powerful impact on our self-assessment, on our sense of identity. Sometimes the sins other people commit against us have a powerful impact on ourselves. If you've been harmed by somebody, by their sin... You've been victimized. You can take on the identity of a victim. I'm a helpless victim. I'm damaged goods. I'm incapable of rising above, of being what God calls me to be because I've been hamstrung by what others have done to me. I've spoken to foster kids who've gone from one family to another family to another family, and they have this sense that no one really wants to keep me, and it must be because I'm not worth keeping. Is that a tragic identity statement? Turn with me to to Psalm 22. David makes a very heartbreaking identity statement in Psalm verse 22, or Psalm 22, excuse me. He begins, he's pleading. It's a a psalm of of lament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer by night, but I find no rest. Then he begins, he's crying out, but then he begins to really think through the situation. Yet you're holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried, and they were rescued. In you they trusted, and they were not put to shame. And look at the next words. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, mocked by the people. What is David saying here? David is saying our fathers trusted in God, and he delivered them, but he's not delivering me. No matter how much I cry out, God still turns away from me. Why? Because it must be I do not somehow qualify for his grace. I somehow don't qualify for his forgiveness or his deliverance. I am simply a worm and not a man. When he says I'm a worm and not a man, he's not speaking of his sinfulness. He's speaking of I am of no value. That God would disregard me. He'll he'll save my father, but he won't save me. You see what a devastating identity statement David is making here. He's wrong, but he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to write that out of a sense of his own feelings, an accurate 
assessment of what he was feeling in that moment of great distress. The reality is God's grace doesn't depend on our worth or our worthiness. If we're people crying out to him, he will hear and he will deliver. But sometimes he calls us to wait. I will wait for you as we sang this morning. But these negative identity statements can be devastating. They can be spiritually crippling. And hear me, they are devastatingly wrong. If you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, realizing who you are in Christ changes everything. Four times Paul tells us in his epistles to walk worthy. He says, walk worthy of the calling that we've received. Walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Walk worthy of the Lord. Walk worthy of God. What does it mean to walk worthy? It means to be who you are. It's to live out your actual identity in Christ. So the answer to our first question, who am I? What is my identity? I'm a child of God. I'm a a sheep, part of the bride of Jesus Christ. And he's not ashamed to call me brother. I'm his and he's mine. That's the first question, who am I? Secondly, what is our provision? Well, Paul tells, or excuse me, Peter tells us back here in 2 Peter 1, verse 3, that he has given us all we need for life and godliness. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I want to point out again the tense of that verb there. His divine power has given. It has taken place, and the results continue. That's the tense of that verb. His divine power has given you everything you need, all that pertains to life and godliness, and you have it. And you always will. And this provision is part of his precious and very great promises of the gospel. Now, the gospel refers, first of all, to the work of the Lord Jesus, his perfect life, and his atoning death. He achieved a positive righteousness by fulfilling the law in every single particular. And then he died in our place. He took our sins upon him and paid the penalty that we deserved to pay. God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to become sin for us or in our place so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He gave himself for us. And when he died, he didn't remain dead. He rose triumphant over sin and death, proving that he had accomplished all that he set out to do when he said, it is finished. That's what Jesus did. Now, the gospel tells us what Jesus did, but the gospel also tells us what Jesus has promised. The good news is that whoever believes in me has, present tense, eternal life. In John 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus is praying to his Father, and he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is not just our inheritance in the future. It's our possession in the present. It contains promises for this life right now, not just a life to come. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, I'm going to begin reading in verse 37. Jesus has gone up to Jerusalem with his disciples for, I believe it's the Feast of the Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. 
And it says in verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given yet, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Hear me. Jesus is not simply speaking about something that happens way off in the future. He's talking about the present possession of every true child of God. Out of our hearts, out of within, from within us flow rivers of living water. That is the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Now, let's be honest, okay? Let's just be really, really honest. Rarely do I feel like rivers of living water are flowing out of me. And that's probably true for some of you too. Some of you, your, your lives are so overflowing with bubbly joy. It's just spectacular. And you just can't believe that God blesses you so richly. That's not me. And yet, we're not called to live by what we feel. We're to walk by faith, not by sight. We're to walk by faith, not by feelings. And whether we feel rivers of living water welling up within us or not, it's irrelevant. It's a reality. And we're called to believe in the provision God has given to us. If you are a Christian, you have the spirit of the living God in you right now. Everything that you need is already in the toolbox. We have the word of God. We have the people of God. We have a new heart. And we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We just need to learn how to use it. We need to learn how to appropriate those gifts which he has given. But there's nothing at all lacking from the provision which God has given to us. Please hear me. You don't need some dramatic spiritual experience. For years in my Christian life, I was reading these books on revivalism and on, on, on these dramatic spiritual experiences where, where the saints of God were so overwhelmed by the presence of God, they could barely contain the joy. And I was saying, God, what's wrong with me? Why don't I have that? We have everything that we need for life and godliness. He will give some people that at, his, at the appointed time in his wisdom when he chooses to do so. But for many of us, he calls us to persevere without feeling overwhelmingly wonderful feelings, just believing the promises that he has given us. Everything that we need for life and godliness. So if you're a Christian... And what I've said is true. There should be no trace of defeatism or hopelessness in your life. How many billionaires have you heard of that fret over how they're going to pay their power bill? You, you hear that and you just go, well, that's silly. Well, if we've been given everything that pertains to life and godliness, why are we fretting and saying, how am I supposed to do what God is calling me to do? Christian, you can, you can live a God-honoring life in the way you think, in what you set your heart on, in the way you behave, in every situation, in every trial that comes your way. God has given you everything that you need for life and godliness. His storehouse of grace is full and open. The spiritual resources that you need are already yours. Now, there's a very important connection here in the middle of verse 4. Let's go back to 2 Peter 1. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become the partakers 
of the divine nature. There's a purpose statement here. The reason, the purpose of this abundant provision is so that through these promises, so that as we walk by faith, we may become partakers of the divine nature. In other words, we might live out the kind of life Jesus is calling us to live. God's purpose for you is not simply your comfort or your enjoyment. Now, there's nothing at all wrong with comfort or enjoyment in their proper place and in balance, but God's purpose primarily is his primary interest in our lives is to make us more like Jesus Christ, that we might become partakers of the divine nature, that we might reflect the divine character of our Lord Jesus Christ, that his image or his, his likeness might be formed in you and me. That is God's ultimate concern for our lives. That's our most significant need, to be like Jesus. It's not emotional. It's not physical. It's not financial. The Lord knows what we need. He provides them, he says. Our, our primary needs are spiritual and moral or ethical. To have a heart that is ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ rather than by sinful desires that bring corruption. God has delivered us from that corruption Remember the hymn writer in And Can It Be says, my chains fell off, my heart was free. And what, did he, what happens next? He said, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. I was set free from the corruption that was caused by my sinful desires. And having been set free, now I begin to live differently. I rose, I went forth, I began to follow Jesus Christ. God is molding us and shaping us and forming us into partakers of the divine nature, forming the character of his son Jesus in us. And that enables us to live a harvest of good fruit in our lives. So that's who we are. That's our identity. The storehouse of grace is fully stocked. And it's yours if you're in Christ. So secondly, understanding this gospel identity, knowing this gospel identity, stimulates our faith so that we will do the hard work of fruit bearing. Look at verse 5 and following. For this very reason, because of what God has given to us, and because of his purposes in giving those things to us, he wants us to be like Christ. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. When we start living out of our identity in Christ, it changes the way we live. It gives us a new confidence. It gives us a new spiritual ambition. When you believe you can begin to live this way, you begin to live this way. It motivates you to go for it. Let's go back to our cathedral construction site for a moment. You're standing there in the middle of the field in this functional hopelessness and helplessness. You're holding a box of Legos and a Bob the Builder toolkit, and you're looking at this drawing of this incredible cathedral. And then you hear this convoy of trucks that begins to arrive on the field. And all these skilled craftsmen from every necessary trade get out of these trucks. And then more trucks come, and they have all of the materials necessary to build this spectacular edifice. Now, we understand everybody doesn't arrive on the same day, and all the materials don't arrive on the same day, but this is an illustration, okay? And they all come to you and say, okay, boss, what do we do? And you're going... I don't know. 
And then another truck comes up. And it's a master craftsman. An experienced job site supervisor. And he says, I'm here to walk with you every step of the way. I will tell you what to do, and we'll do it together. And at that moment, you are no longer functionally hopeless and helpless. You are ready to say, well, let's get busy. There's a new excitement and enthusiasm. We can do this. That's what Peter wants you and me to say. That's what Peter wants you and me to believe. We can do this. And that functional hopelessness and that functional helplessness is replaced by a a Christ-trusting confidence and motivation. Let's build a temple. Let's build a cathedral. The Holy Spirit, hear me, the Holy Spirit is that master craftsman. He dwells inside of every true child of God, causing his word to make sense, illuminating its truth to us, convicting us of sin where it yet remains so we know what we need to work on in our own hearts and lives, enabling us as he gifts us, enabling us to use those gifts, employing them for the service of Christ and the building up of his church, whatever those individual gifts may be. His presence changes everything. And so, having all that you need for life and godliness, he says, let's get busy. And so, Peter says, because of that, therefore, let us make every effort to add these Christian virtues into our lives. The starting place for personal sanctification is believing who you are in Christ and what you have in Christ. The starting place is faith, right? We're saved by faith, believing Jesus died for us and all that he promised, but we, are, we grow and we're sanctified by faith, believing he is at work in us to enable us to be and to do that which he calls us to be and to do. If you look only at what God demanded, if you only look at the law and you look at your own meager resources and your long string of failures, you'll be disillusioned. You'll you'll be discouraged. You'll lose heart. If you look at the the, the drawings and you don't look at all the resources provided, you'll be paralyzed. But the cathedral, hear me, the cathedral God wants to build in your life, it's the fruits of Christ-likeness, faith, and virtue and knowledge, and self-control, and steadfastness, and godliness, and brotherly affection, and love. These are some of the essential characteristics that characterize Jesus Christ as he lived as a man on this earth. And Peter's saying, you can be that. Get busy. Make every effort to add those to your life. But it doesn't happen by osmosis. It doesn't happen Passively, It requires work. He says, make every effort. That's a, uh, that's a word that can mean be diligent. Give everything you've got to this. We're saved by grace through faith. We believe that God saves us apart from anything we do. We call that monergism. One, mono, erg, work. One work. God does the work. We are saved passively. But 
Sanctification is not monergistic, it's synergistic, cooperative work. We work together with the Holy Spirit to grow in grace. Having all that he has promised us, get busy and let's make it happen. One commentator said, human effort's indispensable even though it is inadequate. We cannot make ourselves holy by our own strength and by our own efforts, but you will not be made holy passively if you do not apply yourself to growing in grace. It's a cooperative work with the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter tells us here that we, we must bear fruit, and not just a little fruit. He's calling us to have this vital spiritual ambition that we should bear lots of fruit. And he says, verse 8, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He wants us to have a robust spiritual ambition that these qualities of Christ's likeness should be constantly increasing. We should never think, well, I have arrived. I am now holy enough. I'm enough like Jesus that I can relax. Hear me, don't settle for a shack or a doghouse when God wants to build in you a magnificent cathedral. Don't settle for a little bit of fruit when God wants to bear much fruit in you and through you. Don't settle for a full, a, a little knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. God wants you to pursue a full and deep and life-transforming knowledge of Christ. Don't settle for a little bit of effectiveness when God has much, much more He wants to accomplish in you and through you. But it starts with believing, who am I and what has He given me And what is his purpose in my life? That's the key to being fruitful as Christians. The enemy's telling you it's not possible, so don't even try. And he'll give you all kinds of reasons why this kind of fruitfulness is is beyond your reach. Yeah, there are other Christians that they're they're healthy Christians. They they can be fruitful, but there there are things wrong in you. There are things that that you're substandard. You're ineffective. It's not going to happen. Just, just settle. And the Lord will straighten it all out in heaven. But don't, don't expect much in this life. That is faithless. It's godless. It's accepting and believing the lie of the enemy. He'll give you all kinds of reasons why this kind of fruitfulness is beyond your grasp. And the Lord says, no. I want these things to be in you increasing until the day you meet Jesus and glory. He wants you to see your, your identity in Christ and embrace a, a robust spiritual ambition. It grows out of understanding who you are, what he has given you, and what his purpose is for you. Now, very briefly, let's just look quickly at verses 8 through 10. He says in verse 8, if you're growing in these qualities of Christ's likeness, he states it negatively that they'll keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. What that means is that you will be effective and you will be fruitful in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. Do you want that? I do. It starts by believing who God has made you and what he has given you. And then he says, make every effort. Get busy. Give yourself to it. Secondly, in verse 9, it says, some have forgotten that they're in Christ. They're, They're so nearsighted, they're nearly blind. They've forgotten they've been cleansed from their former sins. And how do we know that's the case? Well, because they lack these qualities. They're not giving themselves. They're not making any effort. They've lost hope in ever truly being godly. 
They've become nearsighted and blind. They've forgotten what God has done. And they've lost their sense of identity in Christ and their resources given to them by Christ. And Peter draws a conclusion in verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you'll never fail. Therefore, because of what I've said, in light of these realities, be all the more diligent. That's the same word as make every effort to confirm your calling and election. How do you do that? God calls us. He chooses us. He draws us to himself. And when he does so, we respond by faith in Jesus Christ. And it's a faith not combined with works, but it's a faith that works. And as we begin to bear fruit, the fruit of faith, the fruit of Christ's likeness, as, as, as we begin to give ourselves in the hope and the confidence of what God is doing in us and what he's promised to us, as we begin to bear this fruit, it confirms our calling and our election. But we have to believe what God has done and be diligent with what he's called us to do. Practice these qualities of Christ's likeness. Live out of the provision God has given us in Christ. But you're not going to make every effort if you don't believe that effort is going to be rewarded. You're not going to make every effort if you don't believe that God has given you what it takes to build this glorious cathedral. And that cathedral, by the way, is actually a temple. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives in us. And so Peter gives us two promises. If you do this, number one, you'll never fall. And number two, in the life to come, you will have glorious entrance in the eternal kingdom of Christ. He's not saying that we're saved by our works. What he's saying here is we're saved by grace, of, by the grace of God through faith in Christ, and in the same way that he has provided all that we need for life and godliness in this life, he will richly provide entrance for us into the eternal kingdom of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. His assumption is that every real Christian will do this, that we will persevere. We believe in the preservation of the saints, that God will preserve us until the final day, but we also believe in the perseverance of the saints. Real Christians will persevere in faith and obedience all the way to heaven. Do you have that confidence that would motivate you to make every effort? Remember Jesus over and over to the seven churches, to the one who overcomes, to the one who overcomes, making these glorious promises of our entrance into his kingdom. Have you ever seen the movie Castaway? I, I like movies, adventure movies that draw deeply on the human spirit. In this movie, Tom Hanks plays an executive for FedEx. And the plane that he's flying on from Russia going over the Pacific Ocean is uh, something terrible happens and the plane crashes in the middle of the ocean and he's left all by himself on a life raft. Everyone else drowns. And so this life raft eventually floats to shore on this uncharted desert island. And he's all by himself. And he has to figure out how he can survive with what he has on his person, what floats ashore from FedEx, and what he finds on the island. But at the very beginning of the movie, he's in the car with his fiancée. They're exchanging Christmas presents. And she gives him a Swiss army knife. And he opens it up, and he looks at it and says, this is so wonderful, I like it, thank you. Places it on the dashboard and goes and gets on the plane. And as I watch this movie over and over again, I think, oh, if he only had the Swiss Army knife. 
And after he's rescued, and he's in the hotel room all by himself, and everyone has left, and there's this huge smorgasbord of food there to celebrate his rescue. He's holding a big lighter and clicking it and watching the flame turn on. And you remember how hard he had to work to, just to make a fire. And you think, oh, if he'd only had a big lighter. If just, just a few simple resources would have made his life so much more livable. Do you feel like something essential is missing from your life? Do you feel like God has not really truly equipped you to be the man or the woman or the young person that he's calling you to be? Do you feel like he's left you standing in the middle of a field with a box of Legos and a Bob the Builder toolbox saying, build this spectacular cathedral, and I'll be back when you're done? Those are lies of the enemy. God in his grace, through his great precious and very great promises. That's the gospel. Through the gospel, he's given you everything you need for life and godliness. The storehouse is fully stocked and it is open. Everything you need to live a fruitful life has been provided. Now, it's up to you to do two things. Number one, believe who he has made you and what he has given you in Christ. Believe his promises, believe his provision, and then get busy. Make every effort in faith, believing him to pursue that godliness he's called you and me to. May God give us the grace to really believe his gospel, believe his good news, and make every effort to be more like Jesus. Amen.